Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Ireland's Nazi Commando. This and the following podcast will look at the story of Otto Skorzeny, a notorious Nazi with a long but forgotten connection to Ireland. It is set in the aftermath of the Second World War to the intriguing backdrop of the hunt for Nazi war criminals after the conflict. Once labelled the most dangerous man in Europe, the focus of the podcast, Otto Skorzeny, was a man plagued by rumours of war crimes, gun running and neo-Nazi activities all his life. His arrival in Ireland in 1957 started a dark chapter in our history, one steeped in controversy, mystery and unsettling revelations about some of Ireland's most prominent figures. In making this podcast, I was able to access previously unseen Irish intelligence reports on Skorzeny and other Nazis, along with numerous other primary sources, from governmental files in the National Archives to private papers held in the National Library. A fully referenced text is available for patrons of the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I would like to take a moment to thank patrons without whose support this research would not have been possible. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast where you can get those episode guides and extra podcasts. Finally, before I begin, there are a few terms I want to explain. In the opening section of the podcast, I refer to a relatively obscure organisation known as G2. This is Ireland's intelligence agency. I have also taken liberty with some terms to make the podcast more understandable. Because large numbers of listeners live outside Ireland, I've used English translations at all times. For example, the official title of Ireland's Members of Parliament is Chuck the Dola, but I've used the English translation of this throughout. Finally, because I quote government papers and state files, some of which are quite controversial, all quotations have a slight echo to make it clear when they start and stop. Now to begin, we need some context, and I start by looking at Ireland's German community in the aftermath of the Second World War. 
In the early 1960s, a Time magazine article about Germans relocating to various countries in Europe contained a funny anecdote about Ireland. It began, and I quote, At a pub near Shannon Airport, a newly landed Irish-American couple listened to the rich, incomprehensible patois of regulars at the bar. Just listen, Harry, breathed the wife. They're talking Gaelic. Actually, they're talking German. What the US tourists did not realise was that the natives were from West Germany, who, like scores of their compatriots, have been eagerly buying up cut-rate Irish real estate. While humorous, the article, like so many stories about migrants, is exaggerated. Ireland's German community in the mid-20th century was in reality tiny. Sure enough, there had been an increase in the German population here since the end of the Second World War, but the change was almost imperceptible. When records began in 1949, there had been 510 Germans registered as living in Ireland. Over a decade later, in 1960, this had risen to 718. In total, Germans comprised no more than 0.025 of a percent of the Irish population. Small as it was though, this community must have been getting used to controversy and international press attention when this Time magazine article appeared in November 1962. Two years previously, they had been the focus of far more serious international allegations and rumours. This had all started on May 11, 1960 in Argentina when Israeli agents captured one of the most wanted surviving Nazis, Adolf Eichmann, who had been living in Buenos Aires. Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust, had been secretly flown to Israel after his capture where he would face trial for his crimes. When the Israeli government publicly announced his capture, attention began to focus on the whereabouts of other Nazis who had survived the war and evaded capture. Conspiracies about how they had escaped and where they were living gained currency. Soon Ireland's tiny German community became the focus of intense speculation. In that summer of 1960, the prominent Hungarian journalist Joel Brandt would make allegations that Ireland was being used as a base for a network of former Nazis who were producing passports to aid other fascists escape the continent. This story sounds fantastical for good reason. It was false. Ireland's German community were up to nothing of the sort. The Minister for Justice, Oscar Traynor, denied the allegation and perhaps even more significantly, the Israeli ambassador at the UN privately informed the Irish government that Israel also paid no heed to Brandt's allegations. However, like all good stories, there was a grain of truth in Brandt's accusations. He did inadvertently help draw attention to some pretty unsavoury characters that were living in Ireland. While the German community in Ireland was very diverse in their political views and experiences of Hitler's Third Reich, as we shall see, there were a handful of pretty dangerous characters in Ireland by the 1960s and the Irish authorities were turning a blind eye to their presence here. It was in the weeks after Joel Brandt's allegations that a British MP for Berkshire contacted the Irish ambassador in London with bizarre stories he had heard about a remote community in Ireland. A constituent of this MP had just returned from holidays in Bantry County Cork with alarming reports about Nazis buying up land in the area. Normally the MP would probably have ignored the rumours, but in light of Brandt's allegations, he passed on the claims to the Irish ambassador in London. When the claims reached Dublin, they were not a surprise, however, because they were, in part at least, true. The Irish government were well aware that a former member of Hitler's entourage, Baron Alexander von Dornberg, 
was in fact living in the Bantry area. A former member of the SS and one-time chief of protocol in Nazi Germany, von Dürrenberg had bought a farm at Lugadine in Glengariff, County Cork, in 1959. Indeed, Ireland's intelligence agency, G2, were keeping tabs on the man with some disturbing findings. Referring to von Dürrenberg and others in 1960, G2's intelligence files noted, While these ex-Nazis do not indulge in political activity here, they are said to hold closed meetings and to make contacts with neo-Nazis in other countries. However, this did not result in von Dürrenberg being banned from Ireland. According to intelligence files, after coming in 1959, he returned for most of the summer of 1960, leaving at the end of August, before returning again in May 1961 for a month. The adverse publicity that von Dürrenberg's case attracted on the back of the Brandt allegations did result in Irish politicians refusing him a permanent visa to reside in Ireland, but ultimately they appeared to have had little concern over his Nazi past. This was hardly surprising though, given there were several former Nazis living in Ireland and they were, by and large, ignored by the authorities. However, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, a far more notorious and well-known individual, Otto Rolf Skorzeny, turned up. He was far too well-known and controversial to ignore, but the reaction of Ireland's political, business and social elite was pretty shocking to say the least. Indeed, the entire Scorzani saga that would unfold is a pretty remarkable story, one that would not only divide Ireland's small German community, but indeed the entirety of Irish society at the time. It began on May 20th, 1957, when he walked into the Irish Embassy in Madrid seeking a visa to enter Ireland. However, before we look at what happened, I want to take a few minutes to explain who exactly Otto Scorzani was and why he was controversial. Labelled Scarface and regarded at one time as the most dangerous man in Europe, Otto Skorzeny was born in Austria in 1906. His nickname, Scarface, was due to a prominent scar which disfigured the left-hand side of his face running across his cheek from his ear to his mouth. This along with the fact that he was 6 foot 4 inches tall and weighed around 18 stone made him every bit a James Bond villain in appearance. After qualifying as an engineer, he joined the Nazi party relatively early in 1931 and played a minor role when his native Austria was merged into the Nazi state in 1938. Like many of his generation, it was the Second World War that changed Otto Skorzeny's life. He joined the army and participated in Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, in 1941. Struck by shrapnel, he returned to Germany, where he began work on special operations. By late 1942, the German army had suffered its catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Stalingrad, a moment many on both sides recognised as the turning point in the war. Indeed, in 1943, Hitler's main ally, the Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini, was deposed from power and imprisoned. It was at this moment that Hitler turned to Otto Skorzeny to rescue Mussolini. His work on special operations were prepared with such an eventuality in mind. What followed was one of the most remarkable actions of the Second World War and gained Skorzeny lifelong fame and celebrity. After finding out Mussolini was being held at a mountaintop hotel, Skorzeny led a team of commandos who successfully landed on the mountain and freed the dictator without firing a shot. 
The following year, his standing rose further when he launched another daring attack, this time taking the son of the Hungarian dictator Miklas Horthy hostage when the Hungarians were about to switch sides in the war. While these daring missions won Skorzeny the respect of soldiers on all sides, his war record also had a darker side. A committed Nazi, he remained loyal to Hitler to the end and in the summer of 1944, when a faction of the German army tried to kill the dictator, Skorzeny was among those who remained loyal and arrested the plotters. At Christmas 1944, during the last great German army offensive in the West, known as the Battle of the Bulge, Skorzeny led scores of Germans dressed in American uniforms behind Allied lines. During this action, deemed illegal under the laws of war, he was accused of torturing and killing US soldiers. Finally, very serious allegations implicating him of involvement in some of the worst acts of the Holocaust would later surface but I will return to these in the next episode. For now, we can summarise Skorzeny as an individual who had carried out remarkable military raids, but at its core was a committed Nazi accused of very serious crimes during the war. Next, we will look at what happened to him as the war ended and how he arrived in Ireland. In May 1945, the Second World War came to an end when the Soviet Union and the Western Allies occupied Nazi Germany. Hitler committed suicide in late April and the German army surrendered on May 8th. Given his distinctive appearance, Skorzeny could not evade capture for long and on May 15th, 1945, he was captured by the US Army who wanted to put him on trial for his actions during the Battle of the Bulge where he had been accused of torturing and murdering US soldiers. Skorzeny was tried in 1947 but was acquitted when a British army soldier testified he had used similarly illegal tactics, that of using enemy uniforms behind the lines. However, Skorzeny was not released at this point. As a prominent Nazi, he had to go through what was called a denazification court, a process that would declare him essentially no longer a threat. So, after the trial, he was sent to a detention camp. However, in 1948, before his case was ever heard by a denazification court, he escaped. He would later turn up living in Spain, which was then one of the last fascist dictatorships in Europe. From this point forward, Skorzeny's story becomes much more murky, as he lived somewhat in the shadows. The sources available to us are either his own accounts or those of intelligence agencies, which have left the man surrounded by myth and rumour. There are some incidents, though, which are worth mentioning. In 1949, intelligence agencies suspected Skorzeny of having aided Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust, who I mentioned earlier, to escape from Europe to Argentina. While he denied involvement, his claims to have never met Eichmann were later proved false. Nevertheless, in 1952, a German court finally deemed him denazified, although, as we shall see, this judgment was probably premature. Through the 1950s, Skorzeny continued to court controversy. By 1951, he published war memoirs, and when they were carried by a French newspaper, Le Figaro, it sparked off major riots in Paris, where 50 policemen were injured. In 1954, he was rumoured to have been offered 500 million francs to kidnap the former Sultan of Morocco. He was also suspected of being engaged in illegal arms dealing, specifically to the FLN, Algerian revolutionaries seeking independence from France. 
While the exact truth of any of these rumours is hard to decipher, the claims of his gun running to North Africa and his connection to Adolf Eichmann would resurface continually. To say that Otto Scorzani was controversial was putting it mildly. He was detested by many in a Europe where the full extent of the Holocaust and the extermination of the Nazis' political opponents in Germany had become known. So when this man walked into an Irish embassy in Madrid on May 20th, 1957 and asked for a visa to Ireland, it was the start of one of the most controversial chapters in modern Irish history. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the outset, Otto Scorzani's story about coming to Ireland was suspicious and dubious. Visa entries to Ireland in the 1950s required two references from Irish citizens. This, you might imagine, would create problems for Scorzani, given he had never been to the country. Nevertheless, he was able to provide one solid reference, a woman called Gladys Mooney, the owner of the Port Marnock Country Club in North County Dublin. Gladys Mooney later claimed her connection to Scorzani was somewhat coincidental. According to Mooney, she and her late husband, Phil, a customs official and solicitor, had met Scorzani while holidaying in the Mediterranean. Now, records do indicate the Mooneys had travelled to Gibraltar in 1953, so it is possible they met Scorzani then. However, given Gladys Mooney was about to go to extraordinary lengths for the man, I find it difficult to believe her connection to him was purely as a result of a chance meeting. Furthermore, in what would today be seen as highly irregular behaviour, Gladys Mooney's sister-in-law, May Mooney, a prominent civil servant in the Department of Foreign Affairs, contacted the Irish Embassy in Madrid to vouch for this story. In any case, one would think Irish officials would want to do a little more digging in the case of a man such as Scorzani. But in what would become a sign of what was to come, civil servants in the Departments of Justice and Foreign Affairs discussed the matter but did not give it the gravity we might expect. Ultimately, they had no objection to Scorzani entering Ireland, with the Justice Ministry stating he was not coming for political reasons and was not of political relevance. We will see that this was at best a naive assessment. Before we continue, it's worth bearing in mind at this point that the Irish immigration policy in the 1950s was by no means lax. For example, if you were from a communist country, you couldn't get in. In 1956, one official in the Department of Justice noted 
It has been the policy of successive ministers for justice, with a tacit and sometimes explicit approval of the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister, or the government for the time being not to grant visas to the civil or military officials of the so-called Iron Curtain countries or even to private citizens other than refugees. Even refugees from these countries were not guaranteed to be let into Ireland. In 1959, a few months before Skorzeny applied to come, Wachlow Golzowski, a Polish man who feared being severely punished by the Polish communist government if he returned, was refused refuge in Ireland. However, evidently, there was no objection to high-profile Nazis, it would seem. Skorzeny eventually arrived in Ireland in June 1957. To this day, the purpose of his initial visit remains very unclear and surrounded in mystery. Certainly, from what we know of his activities, there was much more going on than what meets the eye. During his first visit to Ireland, he stayed with Gladys Mooney in the Port Marnock Country Club. It was at this plush North Dublin hotel that Scorzani received an extraordinary welcome from the elite of Dublin society. On June 10th, 1957, Gladys Mooney hosted an evening in her country club for Scorzani, which was attended by, and I quote a contemporary newspaper here, well-known names in law, architecture and medicine. This was only the beginning, however. Also present was John Kelly Rogers, who at one time had been Winston Churchill's personal pilot and was then the chief pilot of Ireland's national airline, Aer Lingus. Present also was Richard Duggan, a major figure from the Irish business world. As solicitor, he was the chairman of a company called Domus Limited and the director of the Irish Hospital Trust and the Irish Glass Bottle Company, well-known entities in Irish society at the time. However, there was even more important people present. Among the several members of Parliament in attendance was the recently elected Charles J. Hoy, Ireland's notoriously corrupt future Prime Minister, and Paddy Burke, another Fianna Fáil politician, perhaps best known today, in Ireland at least, as the father of Ray Burke. While Dublin society turned out to greet Scorzani, there were others there that asked major questions about what exactly was going on in the hotel that night. In that crowd to meet Scorzani in the Port Marnock Hotel was also a monocle-wearing Frenchman named Beckhart, who the Evening Press journalist who was present, ascertained, had at one time been a member of the French intelligence service and was, by the 1950s, a banker. In which capacity he attended the Port Marnock gathering is not clear, but he had flown in from France especially to attend the meeting and was due to leave Dublin for Paris the following day. As I've said, the exact purpose of this meeting is unclear, but it was invaluable to Scorzani to meet so many leading figures from Irish society. The presence of the one-time intelligence agent Beckhart, who had flown in from Paris for the meeting, indicates it was far more than a simple meet and greet though. Even in 1957, the event raised suspicions. The evening press journalist who I've quoted on several occasions so far mused afterwards, it would be interesting, for instance, to ask Mrs Mooney just how and why she built up her exclusive invitation list to meet this famous commando leader. This question could be asked time and again of several high-profile figures in Irish society in the coming years. Why were they willing to aid Otto Scorzani? And perhaps most importantly, to what end? After what was a short stay in 1957, Scorzani left Ireland and a year passed before he applied for another visa in 1958. 
This visa was also granted, but on the condition he did not travel via Britain because he was on what was called the Home Office Suspect List, a 1950s British comparison of a terrorist watch list. However, there was very little questioning in Ireland whether a man on this list should be allowed into the country, particularly given Scorzani's past. His visa references in 1958 were Gladys Mooney again and Richard Duggan, the prominent Irish businessman whom he had met on his first visit. If the purpose of Gladys Mooney's evening in the Port Marnock Hotel had been to make connections for Scorzani, it was clearly working. The following year of 1959, Otto Scorzani made three trips to Ireland in May, July and then he returned to spend Christmas here at the end of the year. Perhaps coincidental, but perhaps not, his visit in May overlapped with the first visit of his fellow Nazi Alexander von Durenberg. This visit changed Otto Skorzeny's relationship to Ireland as both he and von Durenberg bought farms in 1959. While von Durenberg bought his in a remote part of County Cork, Otto Skorzeny bought Martin's townhouse and estate, a plush, stately home in County Kildare, just outside Dublin. This would in time reveal exactly how Irish society viewed him because he also began the process of applying for permanent residency here, forcing Manny to take a stance on the man. Some of the initial press coverage and public reaction was nothing short of sycophantic. For example, as the story that Scorzani was possibly going to move to Ireland broke in early June 1959, PJ Hegarty, a former army major, wrote to the Irish Times saying... It is recognised that one would not recommend the late Adolf Hitler or his regime for the Nobel Prize. Nevertheless, as a neutral who fought directly against Colonel Scorzani, I would say to him, good luck to you and may you one day also, in the Valhalla of all warriors, be reunited with your other valiant comrade-in-arms, General Rommel. However, this press attention also finally brought out some criticism and an Irish-American tourist and US veteran of the Second World War was one of those who took issue with the coverage Scorzani was receiving and wrote to the papers asking why they give Scorzani the front page to air his distasteful views. You might expect this protege of Adolf Hitler to abuse your hospitality. The fact that Scorzani had bought property and was planning to move to Ireland created much bigger problems though in the corridors of power in Ireland. In September 1959, he applied for a visa to reside here and become a farmer. Initially, the assessment of the Department of Justice was that he should be allowed to move to Ireland given he had been here five times and not committed a crime. However, civil servants in Dublin asked the embassy in Madrid to make inquiries about rumours Scorzani had been involved in arms smuggling and he was in fact being forced to leave the fascist dictatorship in Spain. While the embassy could not verify the reports of arms smuggling, they received information which you might think would have sealed Scorzani's fate and had him banned from Ireland. When the Irish ambassador in Spain, Michael Wren, inquired about Scorzani to his Canadian counterpart in Madrid, he was told the former Nazi was banned from Canada because he was, and I quote, too pro-Hitler in his outlook. Given being born east of the Iron Curtain was reason enough for Manny to be banned from Ireland. One would think that this sentiment, only 15 years after the end of the Second World War, would have helped the Irish authorities make up their mind on Scorzani. It didn't. The saga involving the Nazi dragged on into the following year, 
and the flow of rumours and information reaching Ireland about the man just got worse. In January 1960, the Irish legate in Bern, Switzerland, forwarded a very alarming article which had appeared in the reputable Swiss newspaper New Zurich Zeitung on January the 12th. It had reported how the Swiss-Jewish Community Alliance claimed Scorzani was acting as a liaison officer for international neo-Nazis. However, for some reason, Irish politicians would still not ban Scorzani or even decide not to give him residency at this point. On February the 8th, Oscar Trainer, the Minister for Justice, informed the Department of Foreign Affairs he still favoured giving Scorzani the permanent residency he was asking for and could see no reason not to. In 1960, all Trainer had to do was state that he did not believe Scorzani was a man of good character and this would have been sufficient to have the visa refused. Now while Manny clearly considered Scorzani to be a man of good character, the Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time, Frank Aiken, was not convinced. His department saw Scorzani as, and I quote, a controversial character of some notoriety. Finally, on February the 27th, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Aiken, and the Minister for Justice, Oscar Trainer, came up with what might be considered an Irish solution to an Irish problem. Scorzani would be allowed come and go as he pleased and they would deal with the issue of his permanent residency when he actually wanted to come and live here. Why they didn't refuse him outright is not clear and it is certainly suspicious. A few months later, the summer of 1960 brought with it the capture of Adolf Eichmann in Argentina and with it the allegations Scorzani had helped him escape back in 1949. That summer also saw Joel Brandt make his allegations about underground Nazi networks in Ireland and there was intense focus on the general presence of Nazis in Ireland. Given the charges that Eichmann faced, essentially planning the deaths of millions of Jews, you might think that finally Irish politicians and wider society would have been embarrassed by Scorzani, who was at this point linked to Eichmann. This wasn't the case though. In the midst of the Eichmann controversy in August 1960, the Dawkey Historical Literary and Debating Society invited Scorzani to speak. Dawkey is one of Dublin's wealthiest and most prestigious suburbs and at the meeting Scorzani regaled the audience with his stories of rescuing Mussolini and other anecdotes from the Third Reich. Judging on newspaper reports of the meeting, no one raised Eichmann's arrest or the Holocaust. That year of 1960, one that had raised questions over Ireland's attitudes to former Nazis in general, ended in a particularly dark note. In early December, a synagogue in Dublin was damaged in what appears to have been a copycat attack mimicking others on the continent. The words kill Jews and communists, alongside the German words Juden Ross, meaning Jews out, were scrawled over the building. While this had nothing to do with Otto Scorzani, the time had clearly arrived to sit up and take notice of the threat posed by neo-Nazis. While many politicians were willing to stand idly by, there were some in Ireland willing to take a stand. While Irish society, by and large, appeared to have no issue with Otto Scorzani, and several politicians were inexplicably or perhaps suspiciously accommodating him, one doctor in a rural community in County Limerick was growing increasingly irate with the situation. This doctor knew more than most about the dangers posed by Nazism. His name was Georg Rosenstock, a German by birth who had moved to Ireland after the Second World War. Georg's own story was somewhat unusual. 
He described his background in unusual terms when he said, and I quote, My forefathers were somewhat related with the Jewish race. Presumably able to hide this during the Third Reich, Georg trained as a doctor. He served as part of the German occupying force on the island of Guernsey, which lies just off the coast of France, where he started a relationship with an Irish woman. After the war, he moved to Ireland and established a doctor's practice in Kilfinan, County Limerick. He published books and articles in his spare time and also established a factory in the area. As early as 1960, Georg was aware that some of his fellow Germans in Ireland had very questionable pasts. Writing in the German magazine Zeit, he said some had come to Ireland to avoid what he called certain eventualities in what seems to be an illusion of prosecution for war crimes. By 1961, Georg decided he would take action against the most prominent of these figures, Otto Skorzeny. He wrote to Ireland's leading Jewish figure, one of the longest serving Irish members of Parliament, Robert Briscoe, about his concerns over Skorzeny. Georg's letter to Robert Briscoe, accompanied by a newspaper cutting about Skorzeny, read as follows. With some astonishment, I noticed today the Irish Independent referring to this man as Colonel. The SS organisation has been regarded all over the world as a criminal organisation and it is in more than bad taste. It is a disgrace that the dignified rank of Colonel should be publicly applied to this man. Georg went on to question where Otto Skorzeny had earned his money a very salient point given he had escaped from a detention camp in Germany in 1948 with nothing but the clothes on his back. While he had no evidence, Georg Rosenstock pointed out that this was a concern for those who he said, and I quote, lost all their property by Hitler's criminal actions against the German Jews. For Robert Briscoe, himself a Jew, this undoubtedly touched a nerve. After he received the letter, Briscoe forwarded it to his Fianna Fáil colleague, the Minister for Justice, Oscar Trainer. Trainer's response was pretty shocking given the context and spoke volumes to how he and other figures in the Irish government viewed Otto Skorzeny. Rather than investigate the issue or ask maybe for more information, Oscar Trainer attacked Georg Rosenstock and gently warned Robert Briscoe that Ireland's Jewish community should steer clear of the man. Trainer's reply to Robert Briscoe reads as follows. Dear Deputy, I returned the letter and enclosed press cutting which accompanied your letter to me, with respect to which I have nothing to say except that your correspondent is not a man on whose evidence I would not be disposed to act. I hope and believe that the Jewish community is too sensible to do so in relation to the particular matter concerning which he has written to you. Yours sincerely, Oscar Trainer. This letter is pretty explosive, but context here is very important. Trainer in this letter is referring to the fact that the Irish government did not like Georg Rosenstock. The previous year he had published an article in the German magazine Zeit, which was in parts condescending in its portrayal of rural Ireland. The Irish embassy in Germany had been outraged and even asked officials in Dublin to keep a file on Rosenstock. However, aside from this, I haven't really been able to ascertain any other controversies around Georg Rosenstock. His only foray into the political arena was a lecture he had given in 1960 on the renewed rise of anti-Semitism in Germany. In any case, no matter why they didn't like him, 
The fact was that Georg Rosenstock was a German with experience of these matters who was raising very legitimate questions about Otto Skorzeny and his outright dismissal by Oscar Trainer reveals an unwillingness to deal with Skorzeny and his past. Furthermore, it's worth bearing in mind that this letter was written only 15 years after the Holocaust had ended and telling Irish Jews that they should be too sensible to be concerned about where former Nazis got their money is a pretty damning indictment of attitudes in Ireland. It's difficult to know specifically where this was coming from. It should be noted that by 1960, Oscar Trainer, the Minister for Justice, was 74 and his hearing was failing. He would retire the following year and die in 1963. However, the most senior civil servant in his department was the hardened anti-Semite Peter Berry. As recently as 1953, he had described Jews as, and I quote, politically undesirable, and again I quote, a social problem. However, even acknowledging this, Oscar Trainer's actions here are pretty consistent with the government's policy towards Scorzani since he had arrived in Ireland. While it's a well-recorded fact that the Irish government was willing to overlook the case of several Nazis who had arrived in Ireland after the war, Skorzeny's case does raise very specific questions. He, in particular, was a major headache for Irish politicians given the press attention he received no matter where he went. Government files show that Skorzeny's presence in Ireland up to this point was damaging Ireland's reputation abroad. In this context, the attitude of leading political figures is perplexing. Why they seemed unwilling to act against a man who brought such adverse publicity but ultimately had few friends is something of a mystery. However strange this story has been so far, it was about to get far stranger. In the second podcast on Scorzani, we will see even more serious allegations arise about the man and the goings-on on his farm in Kildare. We will see more reports from G2, Ireland's intelligence agency, about plots to free Adolf Eichmann in Israel, to use Cork Harbour for gun running to North Africa and import weapons for the provisional IRA. I will also, in that episode, look at some theories to try and explain the strange story. The second part will be out in the coming days. Until next time, Sloan. Extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.